Welcome to the official podcast of the Clean Water Campaign for Michigan. This campaign seeks to place clean water issues front and center in the year building up to the 2018 elections by urging every candidate running for public office to make a strong stand on critical issues affecting Michigan's waters. Using storytelling and music events across the state to amplify the groundswell of public support for clean water issues, this campaign is driven by Michiganders from all walks of life who share a similar priority, the protection of our water, a most vital resource. On this episode, we feature a testimonial from Shawnee Womack, pastor, singer-songwriter, storyteller, counselor, and Flint, Michigan native. Shawnee was interviewed by campaign founder Seth Bernard. This episode is sponsored by Hopcat, a craft beer bar with 130 beers on tap in 17 locations across the Midwest. Hopcat is a proud sponsor of the Clean Water Campaign for Michigan and an advocate for the number one ingredient in beer, clean water. Please visit hopcat.com sustainability to learn more. My name is Shawnee Womack. I'm a native of Flint, Michigan, born and raised right here. I am a wife. I've been married for 20 years. We just had an anniversary. <laughs> I'm a mom. I have three sons, 16, 14, and 9. I am a daughter of a Baptist preacher and a sister to five siblings. And I am a singer a songwriter, a storyteller. Um, I love to tell my stories, but also uh, listen to stories and hear other people share with me their stories in different forms, whether it's through singing or dance or even through a piece of artwork. I'm always looking to hear a new story and to understand a little bit about somebody else by their story. Um, I'm also a counselor by trade. <laughs> I um, work doing evaluations with children for um, developmental delays or learning disabilities. Um, I'm also a pastor and I think part of what drew me to ministry and to being a pastor is again the stories. The stories from the Bible and old stories and how we can learn from the stories from the past to give us some guidance and direction for today. For one reason or another, I always seemed to end up working in a school, no matter who I was working for or what job I was doing. And so working in the school, you're working with kids, but you're also naturally connected with families. And so again, you get to hear people's stories and you get to understand their experiences and find out how or why I feel like they've been sent my way. What can I do or share with them to help them in their journey, to give them either a bit of knowledge or um, connect them with someone else who can help them on their way. And so I think that is really my calling. 
is to just be a person to help strengthen families. And that's the best way that we can help kids is to strengthen their families. And so that's my approach usually to any of my work in the schools. And so at this point in time, I'm doing evaluations with children, but I'm also getting opportunities to talk to the families about their experiences and what was mom's experience, say, during pregnancy and um, how those things may play a role into um, in the issues that maybe that child is having now. And so particularly we're talking about water here in Flint how women who, were, who drank the water when they were pregnant or used the water to make formula for their babies or gave it to them to drink um, may have unknowingly, you know, contaminated their children or poisoned them with lead. Flint was, is home. It's a great place. Um, it's had some challenges for sure, but when I was growing up in the 70s, I was a 70s baby. And so um, during that time, it was part of the heydays of Flint. Flint Community Schools were known worldwide. People came from other states and other countries to study how they had put together this school system that was not just about education during set hours of the day, but they had the buildings open all day and on weekends and nights and evenings and they offered a lot of community education and adult education classes. My mother is from Jamaica and so when she came here she went to Flint schools to take her um, some of her immigration courses that she needed. They had English um, learning classes. People who were learning English as a second language could go and take courses in the evening. There was sewing classes, there were always skating parties and ice cream socials and all types of community events that brought people out and the buildings were being used all the time. And so it was just a, a really great asset, a resource. You could find pretty much anything that you needed offered in one of the buildings um, for all ages, not just school age children, but for adults as well. And it was a really, my community, my neighborhood was very close-knit. We knew everybody. We can go up and down the streets even to this day. If I ride through my old neighborhood, I can say, oh, so-and-so lived in that house. This person lived here and this person. So we, we knew everybody, not just on our block, but in the whole neighborhood. And it was a place where we were allowed to pretty much roam free. <laughs> <laughs> we would get on our bikes and just ride for hours or we'd go for long walks through fields and it was a great place. We weren't afraid of anything or anybody. Nobody usually bothered us, but maybe, you know, the neighborhood bully or something. <laughs> but um, it was a great place to, to grow up. It offered, um, because of General Motors and the factories here, it offered a lot of opportunities for black people who didn't have education, whites as well who didn't have education, to come and be able to make, you know, amazing salaries more than they could ever have imagined or dreamt of with just a high school diploma. My dad um, was lured here by, you know, General Motors. Um, he had an uncle who was living here. And when he turned 18, you know, he they sent for him. He came on the bus and came to Flint. He said he walked in and they hired him that day. <laughs> You know, he started working in the factories and he worked there for, I think, about 35 years until he retired. But it allowed him to 
you know, let his family live, you know, this American dream where we were able to go to college and, you know, we lived comfortably. We didn't have to really struggle for much. So it was a different, it was a different time. And then as General Motors left and different things happened with the economy, you know, the city took a downturn. Also, you think about when they, I say they sent in crack cocaine and that really devastated black communities that war on drugs, because then not only do you have people struggling with addiction, but then there's the criminality of addiction, where they were sent into prisons in mass numbers for, you know, drug offenses. So I think all of those things combined really took a, a, a devastating toll on what Flint was, you know. Well, I think it was really hard, you know, for a lot of people because they had grown accustomed to living a certain lifestyle. They had maybe taken on more debt than what they should have through purchasing homes or cars. And then all of a sudden they're laid off or their job is shipped away. So a lot of people did leave. They went to Texas. They went to other places where jobs were being sent, Tennessee, wherever. People, A lot of people did move because they wanted to work. They had to work. And so that began to, you know, affect, say, the schools because your schools are tied to your tax base. If your tax base shrinks, then that's less money for education. So that began to take a toll on the schools. The people who were left had to figure out how to find a new career, whether that's going back to school or trying to find another job that's going to be comparable to your old job is really hard if not impossible so people had to I guess figure out a new a new reality a new way to make it and so I think you know just psychologically that takes a toll on you and you feel like you said angry or abandoned betrayed you know you came to depend on this place this company this corporation and then they decided to maybe move to another state or even move their workers to another country So <clears throat> let's talk about the, the water crisis. Um, it seems like the story kind of quickly spread around the country and around the world, but we're here now and it, it's a problem that still isn't solved. And that's, that's kind of what has brought us to here is addressing the failures in leadership. And um, I think maybe some background would be helpful um, you know, people understand um, certain aspects of the story, but maybe not uh, as complete of a picture as what you have. So, um, if you could tell a little bit about the story of how this happened from your perspective, <laughs> um, and and take us to sort of where we are now in addressing it. Well, I have to be honest. When this all began. I'm not quite sure exactly when it actually began. I don't think I was aware of really what was going on until it was too late. So in that, I feel, you know, some guilt that I was not consciously paying attention to decisions that were being made by our city officials or by our local authorities 
to and really realize what those ramifications would be um, from those decisions. So the part when I really, I guess, became aware or became concerned, it was um, shortly after they had decided that to save money, they were going to switch from Detroit um, water to the Flint River water. When I heard that, you know, it kind of sent up a red flag because growing up, you know, even though Flint was a great place to live, we knew that because of General Motors and I think Dow, there were some other companies who used to be here that they were allowed to pollute the river. So we always knew that the Flint River, you don't you don't swim in the Flint River, you don't eat the fish out of the Flint River. You know, we always knew that the Flint River was not... Um, a place that that you could rely on for your your water that you're going to consume or that you're going to allow to touch your skin and all that kind of I mean it's pretty they built the riverfront up that was I think maybe in the 80s and it was nice to go and look at but the water was dirty it was brown it was awful you know and it smelled (laughs) but they they built you know a nice little I guess riverfront amphitheater and everything down there and people would go and we would we would go downtown for different events but we all knew that you don't get in the water you don't touch the water the water is contaminated so when they said they were switching to the flint river you know that sent up a red flag like "Mm, i don't think that's a good idea but i wasn't I wasn't alarmed to the point where I would go out and protest at that point. I just thought, hmm, that doesn't sound right, you know, but I didn't act at that time. And so over the course of maybe another, maybe, mm, I'd say between three and six months, we began to get notices in the mail from the city water department that um, there were high levels of certain chemicals in the water because they were having to add extra chlorine and add extra chemicals to try to treat the Flint water to make it drinkable, to make it safe to drink. And so they said, oh, don't worry about it. We just have to send out this letter to alert you to this fact that the water can, these chemicals, the byproducts of these chemicals can cause cancer in, you know, small children, the elderly, people with um, compromised immune systems, but don't worry about it, you know, you'll be okay, is what the message that we got. And the letter was like, you know, don't, you don't have to stop drinking the water, it's fine, we just have to, the government forces us to alert you to this. So when that happened, I was like, hmm, we're not going to drink this water. (laughs) So we we had bought Brita water filter pitchers, and so we would filter all of our drinking water through that and cooking water. We started doing that, like I said, probably about six months after they switched over and we got two notices in the mail about high levels of chemicals in, in the water that could cause cancer. And and the water, like I said, it smelled funny. Um, my water was never brown, like some people's water was brown, but you know, there were a lot of complaints. We noticed like our skin was more dry than normal. So all these things began to, you know, raise red flags. And we still were being told the water is safe. You can drink the water. It's no problems. Lead hadn't even been brought up yet. But we were noticing a change in in the water just as we used it at home. And um, then maybe, like I said, a year later, we hear that there's lead in the water. So initially, like I said, I, I think 
we all should have been more aware of what it would mean for them to switch to Flint as a water source and that they would have to add all these other chemicals and that, you know, that those chemicals all have an effect on your well-being as well. Even before we talked about the lead, you know, it causing the pipes to deteriorate and lead leaching into the pipes. That should have been, I think, those first chemicals, those first letters, I think we should have been more alert and more alarmed about that even before we found out about the lead. So once people realized that, you know, we all were being poisoned with lead, that caused an outrage. And initially, again, they tried to brush it off. They didn't even report, I guess, the whole truth of it, but information was being leaked out. And um, and then they did confirm it. And that caused people to really, I think, wake up. One of the first things we noticed, and this is outside of my job, at the time when this happened, I wasn't working for the schools when all this came out. But we work in the community through my church and through my husband's work. So we work a lot in the community. And we began to, they would put, they would put up maps and they would show, because everybody was testing their water. You get these test kits and you send them in and they send you back a report to let you know, um, you know, how much lead was in your water. I think they were testing for lead for, oh my goodness, it was two other things. There was three things they were testing for. And lead was one of them. So they'd send these reports out after you send in your samples. And so they put a database together online. And you could go and look at like a map of the city and see concentrations of lead in certain neighborhoods. And it just so happened that those neighborhoods are where the poorest people lived, whether they were black or Latino, poor white people. The neighborhoods where the poorest people lived had the highest levels of lead. And so I couldn't understand. I was like, how, you know, how did this happen? So I still am struggling with that. But I, what I think happened, how that played out, is because those were the oldest neighborhoods in the city. Those older neighborhoods were more likely to, um, they, they were more likely to have had lead pipes used when they were built. And so people who were already struggling, people who are already just trying to make it day to day. <laughs> now they've got to deal with all of the things that come with being poisoned by lead. And so some of those things that we talked about, some of the basic things that really are the minor things when you talk about lead are, you know, hair loss, um, skin rashes, um, some people had sores in their mouth and sores in, on their skin. Those were some of the minor issues, but then you have to look at some of the more major things um, like anemia um, in children, especially. Lead can affect their hearing. It can cause them to have de developmental delays, delays in walking or talking. Um, it causes children to have difficulty learning difficulty paying attention, um, difficulty with impulse control. It looks quite often like ADHD in children. And so, you know, kids could be misdiagnosed that they have ADHD when it's really lead poisoning. So I think there's two groups of people. And I was in this first group when this first happened. 
because I have kids who drank this water. I drank the water. My husband drank the water. My relatives, people I know and love drank this water. So I was in the first group who just really got depressed, just depressed and and overwhelmed by the magnitude and the the viciousness of this attack. I call it an attack on innocent people. So I was depressed. I didn't know what to do. I just cried. I was, you know, praying for my kids, praying for people I knew because, you know, what what can we do to undo what's been done to us? No amount of, of marching or can undo what has already been done. By the time we found out we were exposed to lead, it was even too late to have an accurate lead test done. They were doing all this lead testing but the lead only stays in your, you know, in your bloodstream 28 days where it can be detected through a blood test. After that, it goes into your bones. And like I said, my family, we had stopped drinking the water early on, maybe about a year before they announced this. So I don't know how much lead my kids were exposed to. And I never really got an accurate number. They did have their, you know, lead levels tested and they were slightly elevated. But I don't know the true you know, level of their exposure because it wasn't done in the time frame that would be necessary to give you an accurate, you know, account for that. So I was just depressed and just felt helpless. Like there's, you know, they've done this to me and no matter what I do, it's done already. So I felt hopeless in that sense. But then I I had to move from that, that space, that place, and then I think you have the other group of people. Even though both groups are angry, one group was depressed and felt hopeless. The other group was angry and felt like they have to do something. They have to reach out for help from somebody somewhere. Even if our local authorities, our, you know, our governor, our city council, our our mayors, our Governor, if these people don't care, there's got to be somebody out there who cares. And so just getting the word out to other people and allowing people from other places to come in and to see and to test and to talk to people and find out what is really going on here. So I thank God for those people who, when they saw what happened, were not depressed, but they were moved by their anger to get help to seek out help wherever they could find it. People like Melissa Mays, you know, I just, I thank God for people like that who acted and just did what they could to try to bring some sort of relief, some sort of help to try to get answers. Um, But we still have a lot to do in terms of policies. That's the next, I think, move for us here in Flint, and and I'm hoping that this whole experience will hopefully raise up a new generation, a new group of people who will be more um, politically minded and more aware of how policy um, affects our, our everyday life and how important it is to have good people in there who have a heart for people who have a moral compass, (laughs) people who um, value life and value the environment 
to have people like that in office because the policies that, that those people make affect our everyday life, whereas something I didn't really, I felt detached from politics, and that was something I really didn't really get too, too involved in because it seemed very just like monotonous, tedi- tedious, like they were just kind of there playing their little games amongst each other, and I didn't really grasp how important the decisions that they make are and how they affect everybody. We can't rely on somebody else to take care of us. We have to be the ones who make sure that other people are just doing their job. (laughs) People who are paid to make sure it's safe, we just assume that they would do those things. And so I think many many of us were, you know, in a sense asleep. We just assumed that, you know, everything will be fine because there's people in place who would not allow anything bad to happen to us. There's people, I'm sure there's checks and balances. So nobody, I never dreamed that somebody would know that they were poisoning a whole city and just be okay with that and just let it go. So for me, I guess it just brought me to a new level of, of just, I guess, just evil in a sense, of evil, that there's a whole group of people that to, to whomever it is, the powers that be, it, we don't matter. You know, our lives are not valuable. We pretty much in a sense have been written off because the effects of lead are devastating. So what do you think caused these people to do this? Where does this evil come from or this sickness? (laughs) I'm realizing more and more every day that that is America. That's what America has always been. And I pray it always will not be this way, but, you know, I don't see much changing unless people rise up and say no more. No more will we just marginalize whole groups of people. No more will we allow groups to be discriminated against because of their race or their religion or their, you know, sexuality. I think we all have to rise up and say no more. But that is truly the history of our country. That's what America has always done. And that's been acceptable because the people in power have made it so. And that's how they maintain their power. So for me, what happened here in Flint was not an accident. It was intentional. Because if it was an accident, when you first see any signs that there is a problem, whether it's, you know, high levels of cancer-causing chemicals or lead, that you would immediately alert the highest authorities And when those authorities don't respond, which we see, there are emails that show the governor did not respond, then, you know, where do we go from there? But but to see that he was complicit in it, that he knew, that shows just how deeply rooted that this idea that there are groups of people that don't matter. Oh, they were going to be written off anyway. You know, they're going to be criminals. They're going to be whatever, drug addicts. So doesn't matter if you poison them. You know, either that's the attitude or either you don't care or maybe you did this on purpose because you got to keep your prisons full. Lead causes 
people to become aggressive and violent. So now you've got a steady population of people from the city of Flint who may be distributing, I mean, exhibiting these behaviors in the years to come. Then you can keep your prison numbers up and keep that for-profit prison system running. So I hate to think of evil on that scale, but this is in line with what I've seen in the history of this country. So it's not anything that I think is far-fetched or impossible. I think it's absolutely very likely and possible that this was intentional. Water is, is a substance that is not fresh water anyway. It's not a substance that is an unlimited commodity. It's something that is a limited resource. And I, I think in America, we don't see water in that way. But, you know, if you go to Africa or even in Jamaica, where my mother is from, fresh water is it, it's something that is, is valued because it's, it can be rare. There are certain times that you can't find water in Africa and people have to walk miles and miles for water or certain times in Jamaica where there has been no clean water and they've had to try to, they would bring in trucks with water for people because the water may have been contaminated for some reason. Could even have been a natural event that caused it. But people who are not always able to turn on the tap and just, magically have water appear, I think have a whole different respect for water and realize that it is a gift. Water represents, I think for me, just the ability to cleanse away whatever um, dirt or whatever sin. You know, as Christians, we believe in baptism and that, you know, they dip you under the water it symbolizes not only a washing away of your sins, but it also symbolizes in that water that there's a death taking place when they put you under the water. And when they bring you back up, you're resurrected as a new person, that you have a new start, a clean slate, and you get to live your life, in a sense, all over again. Because the former life, the old person that died when they put you under the water, and when they brought you up, you're now a new creature. You now have a new destiny, a new eternity. You have a new purpose now because you're no longer living to serve your own self. But now you have a higher purpose, a higher calling. It's showing the world that my old life, I died to that. And now I'm resurrected with a new purpose. My purpose and my goal is to fulfill the will of God, to fulfill the will of my Father. And... I think that for me, if people understood that, who say they're Christians and politicians as well, that to be both of those things, if you're going to be a Christian and a politician, then you have to understand the power of water, <laughs> that cleansing water that washed away your sins, 
but also that water changed you. That there is a power in that water. The water symbolizes the change that took place in your heart. And when that change truly takes place in your heart, you're no longer the same. You no longer can be self-serving and selfish and self-centered. But now you have a different um, view of the world, a different view of yourself even, because of the water. You know, the good that could come out of this, along with people now awakening um, and becoming more active and involved in politics in our city and in our state, I would also hope that it would inspire, particularly like young people, to study these types of issues when they go to college, maybe really have careers in um, areas dealing with the environment and water and solar power and even like agri-science, how can you grow food using less water or grow food in different conditions where they may be adverse conditions, but how do you do that in a way that's friendly to the environment and healthy for people to eat? Not genetically modified <laughs> foods that can harm people, but be innovative and creative about um, um, creating solutions to help people to have, you know, food, not only here in America, but in other countries, how to have fresh water, not only here, but in other countries. I believe that we could become leaders in the world um, dealing with issues of conservation and um, protecting our environment, protecting the planet, dealing with global warming. So I'm just hoping that maybe out of this crisis, it will inspire young people to study and to to take on those types of careers to help change the world. If you've resonated with what you've heard in this episode, we encourage you to get involved with the Clean Water Campaign for Michigan. Help us change the game from divide and conquer top-down politics to a grassroots community effort where people from all walks are united in pressuring anyone running for public office in Michigan to stand strong on clean water issues. Visit michigancleanwater.org to learn more and follow us on Instagram and Facebook to stay connected. Thank you for listening. We'll see you next time.